Chapter Thirty Six of Journey to the Center of the Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter Thirty Six. What is it? For a long and weary hour we tramped over this great bed of bones. We advanced regardless of everything, drawn on by ardent curiosity. What other marvels did this great cavern contain? What other wondrous treasures for the scientific man? My eyes were quite prepared for any number of surprises. My imagination lived in expectation of something new and wonderful. The borders of the great central ocean had for some time disappeared behind the hills that were scattered over the ground occupied by the plain of bones. The imprudent and enthusiastic professor, who did not care whether he lost himself or not, hurried me forward. We advanced silently, bathed in waves of electric fluid. By reason of a phenomenon which I cannot explain, and thanks to its extreme diffusion, now complete, the light illumined equally the sides of every hill and rock. Its seat appeared to be nowhere, in no determined force, and produced no shade whatever. The appearance presented was that of a tropical country at midday in summer, in the midst of the equatorial regions and under the vertical rays of the sun. All signs of vapor had disappeared. The rocks, the distant mountains, some confused masses of far-off forests assumed a weird and mysterious aspect under this equal distribution of the luminous fluid we resembled to a certain extent the mysterious personage in one of hoffman's fantastic tales the man who lost his shadow after we had walked about a mile farther we came to the edge of a vast forest not however one of the vast mushroom forests we had discovered near Port Gretchen. It was the glorious and wild vegetation of the tertiary period in all its superb magnificence. Huge palms of a species now unknown, superb palmacites, a genus of fossil palms from the coal formation, pines, yews, cypress, and conifers or cone-bearing trees the whole bound together by an inextricable and complicated mass of creeping plants. A beautiful carpet of mosses and ferns grew beneath the trees. Pleasant brooks murmured beneath umbrageous boughs, little worthy of this name, for no shade did they give. Upon their borders grew small tree-like shrubs, such as are seen in the hot countries on our own inhabited globe. The one thing wanting in these plants, these shrubs, these trees, was color. Forever deprived of the vivifying warmth of the sun, they were vapid and colorless. All shade was lost in one uniform tint of a brown and faded character. The leaves were wholly devoid of verdure, and the flowers, so numerous during the tertiary period which gave them birth, were without color and without perfume, something like paper discolored by long exposure to the atmosphere. My uncle ventured beneath the gigantic grooves. 
I followed him, though not without a certain amount of apprehension, since nature had shown herself capable of producing such stupendous vegetable supplies, why might we not meet with mammals just as large and therefore dangerous? I particularly remarked in the clearings left by trees that had fallen and been partially consumed by time, many leguminous bean-like shrubs, such as the maple and other eatable trees, dear to ruminating animals. Then there appeared, confounded together and intermixed, the trees of such varied lands, specimens of the vegetation of every part of the globe. There was the oak near the palm-tree, the Australian eucalyptus, an interesting class of the order Myrtaceae, leaning against the tall Norwegian pine, the poplar of the north, mixing its branches with those of the New Zealand cowries. It was enough to drive the most ingenious classifier of the upper regions out of his mind, and to upset all his received ideas about botany. Suddenly I stopped short and restrained my uncle. The extreme diffuseness of the light enabled me to see the smallest objects in the distant copses. I thought I saw. No, I really did see with my own eyes immense, gigantic animals moving about under the mighty trees. Yes, they were truly gigantic animals, a whole herd of mastodons, not fossils, but living, and exactly like those discovered in 1801 on the marshy banks of the great Ohio in North America. Yes, I could see these enormous elephants, whose trunks were tearing down large bows, and working in and out the trees like a legion of serpents. I could hear the sounds of the mighty tusks uprooting huge trees. The boughs crackled, and the whole masses of leaves and green branches went down the capacious throats of these terrible monsters. That wondrous dream, when I saw the antihistorical times revivified, when the tertiary and quaternary periods passed before me, was now realized. And there we were alone, far down in the bowels of the earth, at the mercy of its ferocious inhabitants. My uncle paused full of wonder and astonishment. Come, he said at last, when his first surprise was over, Come along, my boy, and let us see them nearer. No, replied I, restraining his efforts to drag me forward. We are fully without arms. What should we do in the midst of that flock of gigantic quadrupeds? Come away, uncle, I implore you. No human creature can with impunity brave the ferocious anger of these monsters. No human creature? said my uncle, suddenly lowering his voice to a mysterious whisper. You are mistaken, my dear Henry. Look, look yonder. It seems to me that I behold a human being, a being like ourselves, a man. I looked, shrugging my shoulders, decided to push incredulity to its very last limits. 
but whatever might have been my wish i was compelled to yield to the weight of ocular demonstration yes not more than a quarter of a mile off leaning against the trunk of an enormous tree was a human being a protest of these subterranean regions a new son of neptune keeping this innumerable herd of mastodons imanis picoris custus imanior ipsum the keeper of gigantic cattle himself still more gigantic yes it was no longer a fossil whose corpse we had raised from the ground in the great cemetery but a giant capable of guiding and driving these prodigious monsters his height was about twelve feet his head as big as the head of a buffalo was lost in a mane of matted hair it was indeed a huge mane like those which belonged to the elephants of the earlier ages of the world in his hand was a branch of a tree which served as a crook for this antediluvian shepherd we remained profoundly still speechless with surprise but we might at any moment be seen by him nothing remained for us but instant flight come come i cried dragging my uncle along and for the first time he made no resistance to my wishes a quarter of an hour later we were far away from that terrible monster now that i think of the matter calmly and that i reflect upon it dispassionately now that months years have passed since this strange and unnatural adventure befell us what am i to think what am i to believe no it is utterly impossible our ears must have deceived us and our eyes have cheated us we have not seen what we believed we had seen no human being could by any possibility have existed in that subterranean world no generation of men could inhabit the lower caverns of the globe without taking note of those who peopled the surface without communication with them it was folly 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 nothing else i am rather inclined to admit the existence of some animal resembling in structure the human race of some monkey of the first geological epochs like that discovered by m larte in the ossiferous deposit of sansan but this animal or being whichsoever it was surpassed in height all things known to modern science never mind however unlikely it may be it might have been a monkey but a man a living man and with him a whole generation of gigantic animals buried in the entrails of the earth it was too monstrous to be believed end of chapter 36 read by lars rolander